0: Thanks, Graham. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, thanks for the invitation to come and uh, do a bit of Bible teaching. And I have four places to go for several Sundays to do some Bible teaching, which is very good. And meanwhile, keep on doing what you're doing and trusting the Lord, um, and He will bless you. I've known we've known it in our own lives, we've known it in our own lives, we know it in the lives of others. My wee pal, uh, Gordon Thompson, who was ministered at Drum Chapel, has he been here? Gordon. Um, he, he's now full time at the faith mission after about 16 or 17 years as the minister of Drum Chapel Baptist Church and God's blessing Gordon, two weeks ago he was uh, preaching in Airdrie in the Ebenezer and a, a lady in her thirties with two children trusted the Lord which is just wonderful and last week he was in Oban and a man who'd been away from the Lord for years Came back to the Lord last week which is really good and it's just amazing what can happen um, and so I've got the the responsibility for a few weeks to talk about one specific area which I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to speak about the letter to the Hebrews uh, which was a very blessed Part of the Bible for me at one stage in my career. Um, Tonight I want to speak a wee bit um, about. I think the man who wrote Hebrews. Now, there, yeah, there's a a big thing to say because we're not sure. It's a fascinating book, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, It has great Old Testament links with the. the ceremonies and rites and offices of the people in the Old Testament. It is a polished style, so we're told, in Greek. Although, I mean, I can read the Greek, but I'm not a real connoisseur of Greek style. But I know that the scholars say, um, other than myself, that there's a polished Greek style, probably the best Greek style in the whole of the New Testament, followed closely, I would think, by First Peter and Luke's Gospel. Um, And so there's a special interest in the person of Christ as well because the writer to the Hebrews picks up the whole concept of the high priesthood in the Old Testament and applies it to the Lord Jesus and shows how the Lord Jesus is better than the old system. and uh, there's a special interest in Christ, a special interest in Old Testament men and women of faith, because chapter 11 is like the Westminster Abbey of the book, with a whole catalogue of of the heroes of faith in the past. And it's a landmark in early Christian theology, because it, it stands separate from any other book, really. Uh, one of the reasons... Uh, is that we don't know who wrote it. We don't really know when it was written. We guess it was probably written in the the late 60s AD. Um, We don't know where it was sent to. (laughs) It just says to the Hebrews. And the Hebrews were scattered all over the place. Um, And early on in the early church, they thought Paul had written it and for many years, for many centuries in fact Paul was presented as the author of it but because of language and style and content and the method of Old Testament quotation in Hebrews a lot of folk think that Paul maybe didn't write it Um, for example Paul doesn't expound the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus in any of his letters and Hebrews does another thing is that in Paul's letters, when you examine his Old Testament quotations, he sometimes quotes from the Hebrew Old Testament, he sometimes quotes from the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, and he sometimes mixes the two up when it suits his argument. But the letters to the Hebrews, every time it quotes from the Old Testament, it quotes word for word from the Greek Old Testament. Um, various suggestions, Luke, Barnabas Stephen, Silas Priscilla um, Origen said when you boil it all down he said God only knows who wrote the Hebrews and we the an old preacher used to come to Lamb Hill Mission and he used to say it's simple who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, Paul always starts his letters, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ and so on and so forth but the letter to the Hebrews starts God. Well, simple. God wrote it. (laughs) That was Origen, one of the early church fathers. Um, But I think the best suggestion was uh, that of Martin Luther, the great reformer. He thought a man called Apollos wrote uh, the letter to the Hebrews. And maybe I'm going to present tonight to you the idea Maybe Apollos wrote it. I'm going to read a wee passage from Acts and then a wee passage from Hebrews and we'll talk about it. Okay? If you have your Bible with you, uh, Acts chapter 18 and uh, verse 24. It's one of these glorious wee passages in the New Testament, like you have in the, some of the parables of Jesus. Just about half a dozen verses, and there's so much in it. Absolutely excellent for us. Um, and so I'm going to present Apollos to you tonight as perhaps the author of Hebrews. Hebrews v- chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 18 and verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only the baptism of John he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him on arriving He was a great help to those who by grace had believed for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And then the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 just the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 In the past, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So I'm trying to match up Apollos and Hebrews. What can we say? Well,. The Lord is the troubleshooter, par excellence, the Lord can look at our lives and see what's wrong and put us right and that's the story of Apollos. There are some wonderful things about him. Um, If I were pressed for a title for tonight's talk it's the growth of a soul and how God brought this man... to to write a wonderful letter like the Hebrews. (laughs) The growth of a soul. Like a skillful engineer, God is a troubleshooter who knows what's wrong with our lives and how to fix it. Now here's a case in point. Apollos. Three things about him. One, he was a brilliant man. Tremendous cultural advantages. It says here, meanwhile a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now he's got a Jewish background and that's a great advantage because the Jews trained their boys and girls especially the clever ones they got pushed on and sent on to Jerusalem to the rabbis there who would train them in the in Judaism and he was in Alexandria he was a member of what is called the diaspora I don't know if you've heard of the diaspora the diaspora means the scattered Jews when the Assyrians invaded Israel and later on the Babylonians came A whole lot of folk, when Jerusalem fell to the pagan enemies, they scattered into various places and a good number of them went to live in Alexandria. In fact, some scholars say there were as many as half a million Jews. I doubt that. But I would would say, let's say it was only 100,000. But the scholars, some of them say half a million Jews in Alexandria. And... Hebrew is quite a difficult language and after settling there for quite a long time, I mean Alexandria was a trade centre, it was a sailing centre, it was a centre of culture, it had the biggest library in the ancient Near East with a brilliant crowd of scholars running their university and so on. It was a very, very concentrated place for trade and industry and learning. And uh, he was among all that. It got its name, Alexandria, from Alexander the Great, who died in his early thirties at a drunken party. Don't go to drunken parties, you might die. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, Alexander the Great used to leave his veteran soldiers and his wounded soldiers behind everywhere he'd fought with his armies. And he got them to marry the local girls and to make the centres where he left them centres of Greek culture where they learned the Greek language and the Greek way of doing things and engaging all the Greek pursuits and pastimes. And so here's what happened. The Jews in Alexandria, a good number of them forgot their Hebrew. Well, excuse them for that uh, because it's, it's like beating your head against a brick wall learning Hebrew. And they... <laughs> and so the need arose for a copy of the Old Testament in Greek and it was koine Greek, it was common Greek it wasn't the Greek of the university, it was the Greek of the streets and Greek was like English nowadays in today's world and so from about 285 BC the Jews set up a panel of scholars to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek and uh, the book that they translated was called the Septuagint, which is linked with the word for seven. The legend was, if you believe this, you'll believe anything, 72 scholars were locked up for 72 days in 72 different rooms. And at the end of 72 days, they came out with a translation of the Old Testament, and all the translations were verbatim the same. And Bingo! The Septuagint was produced, and this man. eh, There's a lovely phrase describing him in the King James version of the Old Testament, eh, of the New Testament. It says, "Apollos was mighty in the scriptures." That's a great phrase, isn't it? He was mighty in the scriptures. A brilliant man, but he had a crucial ignorance. He had a gospel without a cross and a gospel without Jesus, fully Jesus, the the whole story of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a wee while. Um, It says in verse 25, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor. And so this is wonderful. He not only was clever, he could convey it. He could communicate it. He was a preacher. Some of the great scholars are pretty hopeless preachers. Uh, There's a great preacher called Professor F.F. Bruce, an absolutely world-class New Testament scholar. And I've heard him preaching a few times. (laughs) Uh, But he... He had this wonderful combination of cleverness and communication skill. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He didn't know the whole story. He didn't know how Jesus went to Calvary and died for our sins on the cross and shed his blood and gave his life for us. He didn't know uh, the, the details of the, the death of the Lord Jesus the, the horrible torture it was, crucifixion the, the Romans were like the Japanese today, they copied from everybody and they copied crucifixion from the the, the area we now know as Iraq and um, <clears throat> and it was the, the most heinous way of dying ever invented by the twisted mind of man because it was protracted pain and agony of all kinds and we know we know from the gospels the story of the cross how the Lord Jesus had nails eh, driven into his, his hands and feet and how he was impaled on a cross and how he was thirsty and how uh, they made a fool of them? It tells us in the Gospels, they wagged their heads, and what they were doing was, the, the, the victim on the cross, the only part of his body he could move was his head, and so they were making, f- fools, making fools of themselves, and trying to make a fool of Jesus, by wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you that said you would, if we destroyed the temple, you would raise it up in three days, get down from there, and all that kind of thing. Apollos knew nothing about this. So, it's what I would call a crucial ignorance. And, I mean, I don't know you all, but I'm just wondering tonight, do you all know about Jesus? And I don't mean just know the detail of the story of his life. Do you actually know him? Do you actually know it's possible to have a personal relationship with this wonderful saviour, who died for your sins on the cross that was a vital part of the message and so here's this brilliant man but the second thing about him the second thing about him is he was a humble man now you sometimes you meet folk and uh, they're not very humble you know I met a guy at the golf club two weeks ago and uh, he said to me are you a member here and I said, yes. How long have you been a member here? Thirteen years. How come I don't know you? I'm, I was a club champion and all that stuff. He started giving me his credentials as a golfer. And I said, oh, very nice to know about you. Uh, thanks very much, you know, I'm pleased to meet you. And you <laughs> meet sometimes folk who are very much uh, inflated with the ideas of their own importance. Now, Apollos could have been like that. And here's the headline. The headline is, Mastermind meets tent makers. (laughs) That's the headline. Here's brainy guts from Alexandria. And he meets these two possibly old people who were companions of Paul in the gospel but also in the trade that they followed, they were tent makers. His mastermind meets tent makers. And he could have said, Oh, what have they to say to me? You know. But he could have said, Tent makers, what can I learn from them? But they said, Would you like to come for your dinner? (laughs) And he was humble enough to go into their home and share food with them and listen to their story you know isn't that wonderful Mm -hmm. two great factors in learning and service I was telling a Lindsay Academy Pupil the other week number one humility you must submit to your teachers and you must submit to all these books laughing at you from the shelf written by people who've investigated things more deeply than you have and you can learn from them so these are the two great factors number one is humility and the other one is commitment or zeal or energy or enthusiasm it's described here so here's the surprising thing the mastermind meets the tent makers and in the early church it was good to open your home to other folk and it's a dying it's a dying the folk who open their homes quite often just open their homes to show them off to people <laughs> now Aquila and Priscilla they never said oh what about all that tent making needles and stuff like that lying about the house we can't have him home you know <laughs> they said would you like to come home with us and he said yes and God can bless your home and bless your influence it's a wonderful thing to open your home for giving hospitality. It says in the New Testament, given to hospitality, and it's a sad thing when you're not willing to have other folk into your home eh, to learn of the things of God. And remember, we lived next door to a, a couple. He was a surgeon and she was a pathologist, and. Eh, they hadn't any children and her mother used to come and tidy up the place and you would always see her hanging out washing in the garden and all that and my uh, Jean used to talk to the granny don't they got pally? And then one day uh, a builder dumped 12,000 bricks outside his door into the, pa- <laughs> into the pavement and into the street and I helped to wheelbarrow the, the bricks in and acted as labourer with him for a wee while so uh, Later on he came to the door one night and said could you come into our house Georgia? I'd like to talk to you. And I went into the house and he said Joanne has had two babies and they both died. Yeah. She had two miscarriages and Joanne's expecting a child and we wondered we don't go to church or anything like that but could you pray that Joanne's baby would come safely this time? So I prayed for them. And his lovely wee daughter. And uh, God answered prayer for them. And God can use your home. You know, you, you, you can use your, your influence to speak to other folk at the level of meal times and things like that. So he was a humble man. Um, Apollos was a man with a teachable spirit willing to listen to Priscilla and Aquila and it's good to use our homes for God and it's good to listen to folk who speak wisely to us the chief chemist in Hallside Melting Shop Lab was a grand man from Yorkshire he was my boss and when I left he said I'll say two things to you George he says one I know you're a Christian he says but Listen to my advice. He says, Number one, he said, I would give you a job anytime you want a job. <laughs> and the second thing is, never close a door behind you. He says, Go everywhere. When you leave a place, always leave a place so you can go back to it. And I thought That's, that wasn't from a Christian man but I listened to him and that, is, that has been helpful at times to me in my life so here's a, a humble man a brilliant man a humble man it's good to use our homes for God and then a useful man God used him isn't that wonderful God used him. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And then when he wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. God guided him. God can guide any of us. The four factors in guidance are number one, Bible reading. Number two, prayer. Number three, um, circumstances. We read our circumstances before God. And act accordingly. And the fourth thing is the wise counsel of good Christian friends. These are the four factors in guidance. And God will use us. He doesn't, here's what I put, I hope this is correct. God normally doesn't use proud Christians, or disobedient Christians, or discouraged Christians. illustrate that from scripture but I won't Apollos was useful for the Christians look at verse 27 it says the brothers and cousins he wrote to disciples there to welcome him on arriving he was a great help to those who by grace had believed so that's good isn't it he was useful for the Christians he was welcomed in the churches He was welcomed, it tells in verse 27, he was welcomed by the disciples in these churches that he visited. Um, That's good. And he was worthy with the Jews, he could sort out the Jews. In the open air, in public debate, he was able to refute their arguments. And that strengthens the Christians, you know. Then through the years he would take up their arguments and give them answers spirit inspired answers not like silly answers like I've just given you but he would give them spirit inspired uh, answers to their arguments he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one um, and he was extremely helpful with the new Christians when they landed in among them because he took with him his vast knowledge that he had of the old... He knew that inside out and upside down back to front um, an amazing man he was a brilliant man he was a humble man he was a useful man and I think, a point to note is this <clears throat> when God takes up Apollos, he makes them useful, but he looks after us. He looks after us. Last week I watched a DVD. It was the life of a blind pianist called Peter Jackson. Has anybody ever heard of Peter Jackson? When he was less than two years old, he took measles, and the measles uh, wrecked his optic nerves, and he was blind for the rest of his life. And he tells the story in this DVD, it's really good, you know. I'll I'll just give you a quickie as we go on. When he he was sent 150 miles away from home to a blind school, uh, he tells how the first day went into the classroom and the lady teacher said, Now boys and girls, I want you to sit down and I want you to clasp your hands and I want you to close your eyes and he said we're all blind as bats (laughs) what (laughs) earthly use was that in closing your eyes but then he said she prayed to God as if the Lord Jesus was her friend and he knew he was going to be looked after God looked after Peter and he became a jazz pianist Cyril was a fastballer Pee Wee Hunt Louis Armstrong all these folk and, and before his conversion he was a brilliant penis blind man and he was brilliant and he tells how God helped him to go into a ministry of playing the piano and preaching the gospel all his days and he gave us an illustration how God looked after him he was in a train once and he was preaching at a meeting and he had To get off the train he had his suitcase in this hand and he had his braille music I suppose in this hand and he had his uh, tape recorder strapped to his back (laughs) and the train he was on was longer than the platform that it stopped at. So nobody told him and he just stepped out of the train and wrecked his ankle and he was staggering about and then he heard this man shouting cursing and swearing at him and he said perhaps instead of cursing and swearing at me you could help me <laughs> I'm blind <laughs> he says to the guy and so it was the station master had come out and he was actually standing between the rails and the station master got him out and he said you're a very lucky man he said how's that he said well he said there's been a trade dispute Uh, in the railway today and if you had been standing there normally the Brighton Express would have killed you three minutes ago and Peter said I'm not lucky the Lord looks after me Uh, so the Lord looked after Apollos and the Lord will look after you and the Lord guided him into a ministry of writing if you accept Martin Luther's suggestion you don't have to you can fit it around and form your own conclusions Um, and uh, Apollos was the author he teaches us three great lessons uh, in Hebrews chapter 1 and the first four verses number one God is not dumb (laughs) verse 1 in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways I would translate in fits and starts and bits and pieces (laughs) that's my translation for these two phrases in fits and starts and bits and pieces but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son God is not dumb Now the best book in the Old Testament to refute idol worship is the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah and he talks about idols, they've got eyes and they don't see they've got mouths and they don't speak, they've got ears and they don't hear Um, and uh, the gods of the pagans couldn't speak and today all over the world, millions of people worship idols that don't speak and they'll bring them offerings and there's no real assurance that there is a transaction between two people here but the glorious thing about God the writer to the Hebrews says, is that he speaks God spoke unto our fathers through the prophets, God speaks to us in a son Isn't that wonderful? That's a good way to start your letter. And then he says, God is not dead. God is not dumb. God is not dead. He has, in these last days, spoken to us in a son, and He gives a description of the son in these verses—a wonderful description. He the radiance of God's glory, and He uses actually an Alexandrian word that's not elsewhere in the New Testament: apogasma. It's a great word, isn't it? Apogasma—the the radiance. It's used of um, shining, the shining out of God's glory and he uses a coinage word and the exact representation the icon the exact representation of his being like a die accurately reproduces the image of the the king or the queen on the the coinage Um, God is not dead God is not dead and you can tell anybody you meet this week, say, hey, by the way, did you know God is not dead? Um, <laughs> God is not dumb. God is not dead. God is not dated. He's as up to date as today's newspaper. And his glorious son shares his throne. He's um, not dated. Back in the 60s, they surveyed uh, clever scholars from public schools and they, they were asked a question. The question was, Do you think God understands nuclear physics? And 92% of them said no. <laughs> and they were wrong. <laughs> because God, God created the nucleus and all the nuclear physics that goes with it. He is not dated. He's up to date. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Oh, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, same book. Um, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Wonderful. Yesterday and today and forever. God is not dumb. God is not dead. God is not dated. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And that name and that life continues forever and ever. God is not dated. So I'm going to leave it at that tonight because I think that's probably enough um, to talk about Apollos and how he maybe wrote Hebrews. (laughs) What's the value of Hebrews. Well, Hebrews helps our Bible study, linking Old Testament and New Testament. Anything else? Well, Hebrews keeps us Christ-centred. Because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center of this letter. With special emphasis on his high priesthood. And then thirdly, Hebrews builds up our faith, inspiring us by using the lives of earlier people of faith in whose steps we walk. You know? Anything else? Well... Hebrews warns us against backsliding, which can manifest itself in two ways. First of all, drifting away from God. He talks about that in in chapter 2. He says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we, we do not drift away. Drifting away in willful apostasy um, either manifestation of backsliding are warned against in this letter anything else well, number five it, it stresses the importance of church membership and fellowship and it's full of it's it's a letter of exhortation it's always yeah, calling us to do something so it's, it's a salad it's a, a salad letter I think let us, let us do this, let us do that let us do the other it's a salad message let us let us the importance of let us not neglect the, the gathering of ourselves together the church is important Fellowship's important fellowships strengthen us you know I used to look around and think I knew I knew the the testimony of some of these folk you know and how they'd come to the Lord and how you could see the change in them it was wonderful to be encouraged by the lives of other Christians and so it also supports us in times of trial and persecution The the, the evidence, without going into it here, the evidence here is that they were about to go through a fiery trial, and the fiery trial, if the letter was written in the 60s AD, about mid-60s AD, in the summer of AD 64 or 65, the first uh, systematic persecution of Christians started under the emperorship of Nero. Nero was like Hitler. He fancied himself as an architect, and he wanted to rebuild the centre of Rome. So he uh, he bribed a few folk to start a fire, and the fire raged beyond control for several days, and hundreds of Roman citizens were were injured in it. And Tacitus tells us in his uh, Annals of the Roman people that. Uh, He was looking for a scapegoat because the rumour had started that Nero had started the fire. (laughs) Nero, it wasn't me, it was the Christians to blame. It was the Christians to blame. Get them. And so they rounded up the Christians. And Tacitus, in graphic detail, tells us how some of them were sewn up in bandages, soaked in tar. And put on poles and set alight at night as uh, floodlighting for Nero's gardens, while Nero uh, says that Nero, walked among them in the guise of a charioteer. Um, others of them were, were sewn up in animal skins and set loose to starving wild beasts in the Roman arena for the entertainment of the, the Roman public. Um, and in this letter the writer is warning them being a Christian is not easy you're going to face persecution fiery persecution and you've got to be ready for it Um, so it's a wonderful letter and over the next three weeks we'll just well, I'm not, I don't propose to spend a year on it. In fact, I'm not going to ask to spend a year on it. But I preached through Hebrews and it took me over a year. So you can imagine I've got plenty of material for three weeks. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the inspiration of a man like Apollos. And we say... As we look at his life, we say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing ever only to my King. O God, our Father, we thank you for these wonderful, inspirational men and women the past and we confess that beside them we are not giants, we are pygmies. Help us to live our lives and give our gifts to you and to the service of your church and your gospel. For Jesus sake. Amen.